0: Welcome to church today. This is Sunday in case you lost track of what day it is. This is the seventh Sunday we have not met inside our church building as a group. A few years ago I scanned through a book called The Book of Failures. It was pretty interesting the amount of failures they had in the book. I think they had 170 failures that people had. It's kind of a humorous book. And one of the failures was a man who had 169 patents. His name is Perdick. In fact, he had some bizarre patents that he uh, uh, developed. One of them was, I'm not kidding, you can drive your car from the back seat. All right, that's kind of weird. But he also had an invention to irrigate all of Australia by having a system of pipelines deliver snowballs from the Antarctica. It was kind of like these giant pea shooters that would shoot giant uh, uh, wads of snowballs over to uh, irrigate fields. Well, not a single one of his patents produced any money for him. He, In fact, he was just what we would call a, a failure in that regard. One of the more humorous ones was a lady who had her cat stuck up in a tree in London and she called the fire department and they raced over to the home and they went up into the tree and rescued the cat and brought it down to her. She invited all the firemen in for some tea. They were uh, finishing their tea and getting ready to leave. They gave hugs and goodbyes and they backed out of the driveway and ran over her cat. I guess you would call that a failure. Now then. Those might be kind of humorous failures that we can talk about, but sometimes failure can be painful. When we have a moral failure, when we have a spiritual failure, it can have dire consequences in our lives. It can be filled with pain and regret and guilt as well. So here's my question today What should we do when we sin? If I sin, what should I do with that spiritual, moral failure in my life as well? Now then, The term sin has fallen on hard times, and people don't even like to talk about the word. In fact, if I bring up the word sin, some people might label me and say, you're nothing but a bigoted snout-nosed pig. You get your morality off of my body or something like that. But if I say, hey, I'm a sinner, people might go, there, there. You're too hard on yourself. Be a little bit more lenient. Okay, so we have this thing with sin where we don't really want to talk about it, but the Bible talks about it a lot. And the question that the Apostle John is going to help us with is this, what should I do when I fail spiritually? What should I do when there is sin in my life? In fact, that's an important question because myself and all of you who are watching and listening to me, we struggle with this. We struggle with that certain kind of sin that, well, trips us up. We struggle with things and we wonder, what will God do in my life and what can be done about it? So the question what should I do when I sin is uh, pertinent to all of us as well. Now, the people who wrote the Bible were not perfect, not, not in any way, shape, or form. King David wrote many of the Psalms. He was a murderer. Apostle Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. Apostle Paul, he was a conspirator for murder for a man named Stephen. Stephen. I mean the people who wrote this book that we have this book that we read all the time they were not perfect people so when we talk about sin we need to understand that there are no people who are perfect and we're all in the same boat we're all separated from God by the sin in our lives now then if you have your bible i want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10 and we're going to look at the question what should we do when we sin? And it's the question that John answers for us. So let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1, verse uh, 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, John is writing this letter in fact he wrote the gospel of John which is the story of Jesus and then he writes three more little letters and the first one that we call 1 John at this point in his life John was probably 85ish or so he's an experienced seasoned church leader he's an apostle that means Jesus sent him on a mission, and he's been a missionary starting churches and doing evangelistic work and working with people. And so, in other words, he's been around the block a few times, and he has a lot of life experience. And he knows that one of the difficulties for us who are Christ followers is we want to know what can we do when we sin? What should we be doing? The first thing that John wants us to know is simply this. Number one in your notes, God is light, And by that we mean perfect good, holy. We see this in verse 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Light and darkness are metaphors that John uses. In fact, John is one of the most spiritually minded authors of the New Testament because he's constantly using these metaphors. He uses love and hate, light and darkness. And in this case, light is everything that's good, perfect, holy, and darkness is everything that is evil as well. And when we talk about God being light, we're talking about His moral perfection. In fact, John says there's not even a hint of anything wrong in God's uh, essence at all. God is perfect all the time. John uses a word that actually is a word we use in English for light. It's phos or photon we use. And by that word, The uh, ancients meant that everything that is good and perfect, it's kind of like when we say we shine the light on something, it's perfect, and that word was used of things that give us delight or things that are pleasurable, and so when we talk about God as light, we're saying that He's he's 100% good, He's 100% perfect, He's 100% holy. I don't know exactly what John was thinking, but maybe he was thinking back to John chapter 8, in which he told the story of Jesus being by the temple. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, we read this When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, it's one of the interesting features in John's writing style is that sometimes he will present something that's good and positive and then he'll flip it right around and talk about the negative side. You know, God is light, but we can't walk in darkness. And so he starts with the positive thing. Another thing that John usually does is he talks about God first and then he talks about our response to Him. So in other words, John is very clear that life is about Jesus Christ He's first. Life is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus, and it's about our response to Him as well. In fact, John is making this statement about as strong as you can to his original readers. In fact, he uses a double negative, which is bad to do in English, but in John's language of the day, it was a popular way to emphasize something. God is good, and there's no hint No caveat of darkness within God at all. Now, this is radical thinking in the first century. Now, we may not pick it up, but in the first century, there were lots of idols that people worshipped. And in fact, some of the idols that they were worshipped were maybe evil spirits or maybe some of the idols they worshipped or other gods they worshipped. They thought of them as being partially good, but having a bad side, a difficult side. And so John is making it very clear to you and to me that he is the God of light. He is a good God. And people need to know that today, right? Even today in our culture in Eugene and Springfield, there are people who think, well, there's this God of the Old Testament is evil. There's this God of the New Testament. He's loving a little bit. You know, we need to get the truth straight that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, because God is light, that gives us point number two. I must walk in the light to have fellowship with God. And John picks this idea up in verse 6. He says, if we claim we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if, but if we walk in the light, and He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. You just think about it for a moment. What kind of God do most people want to have in their lives? Sometimes people want to have a God that is, well, kind of a a father-time kind of God, or somebody that's a grandparent that's just all mushy. Sometimes people want a harsh God, and sometimes people want to make up their own God. Well, John is telling us that God is light, and because, that God, because God is light, we need to walk in that light as well. In the Bible, sin is something that separates us and fractures our relationship with God. And we need to understand that if we want to walk with God, we need to walk in the light that He has given us. And what concerns me sometimes is that people can rationalize their behavior. They can rationalize their attitudes. They can rationalize their thinking. And they can be on the wrong track and they're just justifying their attitudes or justifying their actions as well. And they treat God as if God is somebody you can bargain with. Hey, God, I know I'm not doing this quite right, but you know my intentions are good. Or, Hey, God, I know that that this isn't something you would have me do. It's not your design in my life, but I've chosen this other way. And maybe you'll excuse that, and it's not so bad. There, there. But no, the Bible paints a very different, different correlation as well. Now then, we pick up this word fellowship again. And the word fellowship in the Bible, as we talked about last week, meant basically to be in friendship with somebody. It often meant a community of people. It could mean a family. It could mean a business partnership. And this whole idea of fellowship meant that you had something in common. As believers, we have Jesus Christ in common. And John is saying we can have friendship with God. We can have fellowship with God. And that relationship is the basis for relationships with other people as well. We use the term fellowship sometimes in our everyday language, not very often, but people talk about getting a fellowship at a university or a scientist gets a fellowship at a research center. We've even talked, you know, in the movies, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the Fellowship of the Ring. And so this idea of fellowship isn't uh, maybe that common, but yet we see it in our culture as well. When you walk in God's light, you have fellowship with God. When we walk in darkness but claim to have light, we're being hypocrites as well. So John's logic is straightforward. Because God is light, he says you should walk in that light. But if you choose to walk in the darkness, you're just practicing self-deception as well. We live in a dark place, and John picks that up too. And it was dark in John's era as well. And we live in a dark place where people are addicted to alcohol, substances, There are porn addictions. There are people who have family dysfunctions. People walk out on their spouses. They walk out on their jobs. Well, maybe you got laid off from your job. Anyway, we have a dark culture, and it's in contrast to the light of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes as my role as a chaplain at the Eugene Police Department, I get to do ride-alongs with police officers, and at 2 a.m. on a Friday night, you get to see some of the dark side of our community. And in fact, don't be fooled, it's there. But I want you to know something, that dark side that you think is out there with other people, it's actually in your life, it's in your heart. No one's heart is perfect. Don't be prideful and arrogant thinking that darkness could never be part of my life. And the minute you begin to think that your life is perfect, you're on a perfect track with Jesus Christ, you're setting yourself up for spiritual failure. It's pride. We have to guard ourselves against that as well. Many years ago, a couple came to see me for marriage counseling and we're sitting down at a table, kind of like this table, and they're across from me and And they begin to tell me what's wrong, and she begins to tell the story. She goes, my husband here, he went to the strip club last Friday night. And he interrupts her right away, and he goes, well, I had a flat tire, and Pastor Steve, I needed to go in and use the phone. Okay, so I'm thinking to myself as he tells this story, that's the biggest lie I've heard in the last few years. Come on, dude. This is what I'm thinking. You're not fooling me. You're not fooling her. You're definitely not fooling God. And then all of a sudden she pipes up. And she goes, Pastor Steve, we live one block from the strip club. He could have walked home. And I thought to myself, man, you're busted. But you're walking in darkness. And a little bit of light is shining down. What are you going to do with that? When we walk in darkness but we claim to be walking in the light, John says we deceive ourselves as well. Well, how do I walk in the light? You know, that's a really good question. So we talk about this. It's a metaphor and uh, maybe not so uh, concrete in, in concept. But I think one way that we can walk in light is to make sure that we are involved with God's Word. And in fact, in Psalm 119 verse 105 it says this, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. So, what lights up your path is this book, the Bible. In fact, when we read Scripture together, when we read it on our own, we—it's kind of like looking in a mirror, and you can see: Does my life match up with what I read? Many of you have chosen to do an online Bible study with one of our elders, the Book of Luke, and it's a Facebook account, and and it's great for me to read the comments that people make. And I can guarantee you this, as we read through Scripture together, we see how our lives need to be shaped and adjusted to match Jesus Christ. How do I walk in the light? Well, one thing is to read God's Word. In fact, I would say it's the primary way. You pray about God's Word, you think about Jesus Christ, and then you begin to look at your life, and then you begin to match it with the life of Christ. We call that transformation as well. We can live in that light. Now John says that we can have fellowship with one another when we're both walking in the light. I have seen that so many times in my life. When I'm walking with the Lord and my friends are walking with the Lord, our connection to one another and our fellowship is just incredible. But when one person gets off track and walks in darkness, then it makes it difficult to have fellowship together as well. We share a commonality when it comes to Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I had a very close friend who decided that he wanted to choose a different kind of life. It grieved me deeply as we had many talks, and he flat-out lied to me multiple times about His life. And it was something that, it wasn't the lying that, that kind of made us go our separate ways. It was the fact that He chose to walk in a totally different direction in which I was going. And that can happen in a marriage, that can happen in a family, that can happen with your friends. But when you have the commonality of Jesus Christ and that kind of fellowship What it does is it brings people together. Number three, excuses won't cut it. When it comes to talking about sin and God is light and walking in the light, sometimes I just think it's natural for us to make excuses. And we can see some of those in our passage, and John anticipates those. So number three, excuses won't cut it. And there are three verses I want to highlight for you. Verse six, it says if we claim to have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness. And then in verse 8, the same kind of phrase, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, John writes, if we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His word is not in us. So it's kind of like John is anticipating three Obstacles or objections to walking in the light. And he goes, Well, you can claim this or you can think this way about it. And he's saying, No, 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 let's not go down that path. And he talks about, by the time he gets to verse 10 in our passage, he's talking about sin. If we claim we have not sinned. Now, the word sin is found 16 times in the book of 1 John. John is the author that uses the word sin uh, frequently. And when we talk about sin, what we're talking about, about is missing God's perfection. And you've probably heard this before, but the word sin was used of archers in uh, the um, uh, in old English language. And so the archer would miss the bullseye as he pulled back on the bow and missed the bullseye. And he said, I've sinned. I've missed. Well, what John is saying here is that if we claim that we can't sin or that we don't have any sin, we're just setting ourselves up for failure. He says we're just being self-deceived if you think that way. I wrote down this comment, a dog is not a dog because it barks, it barks because it is a dog. Now here's the thing, sin is what we're born with and we're predisposed to that. We're not as bad as we can be But we have this natural disposition. So when my kids were born, they were cute and cuddly. They were just awesome. And then they turned three, two, the terrible threes, the terrible twos. It's kind of like they had had a self-will. And then your kids become teenagers. And you will go, oh, my goodness. Wow. And you have all this tension in your home with teenagers, right? Well, where does that come from? Well, I'll tell you where it comes from. Our hearts are naturally inclined to do what we want to do. In other words, we're naturally selfish. That's who we are. Now, John says, when we begin to walk in darkness, it's not like this. We could think of it this way. I may know the truth, but I've chosen to practice otherwise. Do you see the difference? I know the truth, but I practice otherwise. So, let's just say that a bunch of us at Grace Community Fellowship, we, we uh, start a, a healthy support group, and it's to, uh, to lose weight. And so you show up every week or several times a week, and you tell everybody what you ate. And so we go together, a whole bunch of us go together, and someone stands up and said, this week I ate kale and grapes and everything healthy. And then right after the meeting, they go to Burger King, and they snarf down three whoppers A biggie order of soda and fries. And in fact, they do that every day. But yet they come to the support group meeting and they say every time, I'm eating kale, I'm eating lettuce, I'm eating grapes and nuts. Well, you know what? Once they get found out, what happens? There's tension right there, right? That's because they know what they should be doing, but they don't practice it. Knowing and practicing are two different things. But what happens is we make excuses when we don't practice that way. You know, in our culture, we've changed the label of, well, sin. Often we call it mistakes. And as one person said, God never calls us mistakers. God calls us sinners because sinners need a Savior. And therefore, we change the label. But I want you to know something. This sin thing runs deep within us. It's called pride and selfishness. And when we sin against God, it's not because the culture influenced us per se, but because it came out within us. You don't believe that sin is predominant in our culture? Let me ask you a couple things. Why do banks have bank vaults? Why are there bars on the door? Why do my doors have locks on them? You just look at the criminal justice system, and people get arrested for stealing the eighth, filing the eighth command thou shalt not steal. And then they slap the handcuffs on, back of a police car, to the jail. Maybe they get sentenced and they go to prison. Why is that? That's because of sin. And so our criminal justice system sees that. But yet sometimes we deny that it's going on. I want to talk to you for a minute about a concept that is, I think, difficult to grasp in some way, but is incredibly important for you today. It is really important. So listen closely. The minute that Steve Hill crossed the line of faith, the minute that you crossed the line of faith, you trusted Christ as your Savior, you have been adopted into God's family. You are part of God's family. You are a son or a daughter of the living God. And the moment that you trusted in Him, you uh, experienced new birth. And, in fact, the Bible has a word for that, it's the word justification. It's a legal word. And this legal word means that God declares you innocent. Now, I want to emphasize declares. It doesn't mean you become perfect. He's just declaring that you're innocent, that your passport has been stamped to heaven. And, but then the problem is, after that, we still struggle with sin sometimes. Or we fall off the wagon, however you want to call it. We mess up. We have spiritual failure. We sin along the way. And what happens is, is we begin to feel this guilt. Now then, when John is going to talk to us about what do we do about sin, what he's talking about is for those who are already believers, what happens when we sin? So let's just think of it this way, that in your house you have teenagers. I don't know how many of you have teenagers out there. Anybody have teenagers? Or you have kids in your home? Or, Or maybe just think back to that time. Or if you're a teenager, you just flip this around and you just think, that's my parents'. That's my parents, okay? And so you got a teenager at home, and you tell them, hey, during this quarantine, you can't go over to your friend's house. And, in fact, you can't have all your friends over here. And then, and then your, your uh, 16-year-old, your 18-year-old, whatever, uh, gets upset, and they take their fist, and they punch their bedroom door and put a nice hole. Or they go into their bedroom, and they throw their phone against the wall. And you come into the back bedroom because you've heard something, and you know what happened to the door? And your teenager goes, I tripped and fell into the door. Or you say, what happened to your phone? And you say, well, I fell down on the floor and it broke my phone. Now then, you're not buying an ounce of this because you know that your teenager has messed up. They've gotten anger. But let me ask you something. Are they still your child? Well, absolutely. Has it strained the relationship you have with your child? Absolutely, it has strained it. So that's the analogy that I think helps us understand, what should I do when I sin? Because what you want to hear from your teenager is, yeah, I punched the door because I was wrong. You want to hear them come clean about their feelings, and you want to have them come clean about, about what they did. Another example I thought of this week is sometimes when I, if I go to the doctor, I have to fill out one of those forms that talk about how you're feeling, and sometimes they'll ask who is the emergency contact person for you. And so I'll write down, emergency contact, Mary Hill. And then, on some of it gives an option. Is this your spouse, your friend? uh, uh, What's your relationship to the emergency contact person? So it could be spouse, parent, child, friend, or other. Now this always gets me because What's my relationship to Mary Hill? Well, if it's other, I might put down, well, it's a little strained today because, well, she called me a fathead a while back. Yeah, she called me. She called me a fathead. In fact, we were playing cards, and I made a comment, and she called me a fathead. Now then, only Mary Hill is allowed to call me a fathead. And she does not because, well, she knows it kind of gets to me, but She calls me fathead. So I could write down my relationship, fathead. Or I could say cold or strained or happy. But no, the legal relationship between myself and Mary is spouse, wife. Now, if you ask me how the fellowship is with my wife, oh, that might be the cool or hot or warm or or friendly. You see, When we talk about fellowship, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about my ongoing relationship with God as well. This brings us to point number four. This is what we do when we sin against God. I must confess my sin to God. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, this word confess is pretty incredible and it means to call it what it is. It means to label it. Hey, this is what I did. It means to be honest and come clean about something. It means to acknowledge what is true. It's just like with your kids. You want them to come clean. Hey, who spilled the grape juice on the sofa? Who backed into the garage door? Who punched the door? You want them to come clean about that. And when they come clean and confess, the action or the attitude it is the beginning of restoring harmony. There's an old joke. It goes this way. Sunday school teacher asked his class, Children, what must we do first in order to be forgiven? One little boy raised his hand. Well, first, I guess you got to sin. I suppose he's right. Yeah, first you got to sin. But what do you have to do to be forgiven? Well, this verse helps us with that. And that step is to confess. Sometimes we struggle and we think, does God really forgive me? And some of you are watching me right now, and as I talk about moral failure and sin, it just digs up a lot of garbage in your life. And you're wondering, does God really forgive me for that or for this or for that time a long time ago or this morning or whatever the case may be? Friday night I did this, Saturday night I did that. And you're struggling with, does God really forgive and then you begin to think, well, maybe I didn't cry enough and maybe I wasn't sorry enough. This verse doesn't say be sorry, it says to confess. And to confess means to call it what it is and to agree with God what has happened in your life. And when you do that, you have forgiveness. Notice what kind of forgiveness it purifies us from everything, from everything. Notice the edges there, that God is faithful, He's just. That means God will never, ever withhold His forgiveness when you confess your sin. That's pretty incredible stuff if you think about it, right? Now, if you don't confess your sin, here's what happens. You will stockpile guilt, and you will have a mountain of guilt in your life, and it will be dragging you down. And it'll interfere with your relationship with people. It will interfere with how you do your job. It will interfere with your relationship with God, the stockpile of guilt. Why let that drag you down? So the step is to confess. That means if you stole money from your employer, you tell God that. God, I stole money from my employer. You confess it. Then I would recommend you confess it to your employer. You know, one of the things we do is sometimes we blame people for our problems. We blame our spouse. We blame our, our family background. We blame the COVID-19 virus for something. We just We are good at blaming when in fact we need to take responsibility and to confess what we've done. The death of Jesus on the cross covers all your sins, purifies you, brings you forgiveness. It takes you sin takes you out of fellowship with God. It takes you out of fellowship with other believers. In your notes, here's the first bullet point. confession is conceding it is true. It's conceding what is true. long time ago, one of my friends had his truck out here at my house and we were doing some landscaping He had gravel in the back and My kids were playing in the back of the truck. They were little at the time with other kids, and we came around the corner, and there were no kids in the back of the truck, and the back window was broken. Hmm. So we lined up the usual suspects, who were about this tall, and we began to gently quiz them. Did you break that window? No, not me. Are you sure you didn't? Now you're getting some fidgeting and some guilt looked, uh, guilt on their faces Till one of them broke and said, he did it. You know, that's all we want to hear, somebody that would acknowledge what they have done. And when we concede what is true, when we concede that, it restores our relationship with God. Here's the next bullet point. Intimacy is rooted in honesty. Now, by intimacy, I mean close. If you want to be close with Jesus Christ, you need to be honest. You need to be honest about your emotions with Him. Tell Him about your emotions. You need to be honest about what you struggle with. I got news for you. He already knows. It's like if you have a nice piece of furniture and somebody spilled grape juice on it, you know who did it. One of the kids, right? You know who did it, who, who has done that. And so, what you want to hear is somebody acknowledge it, to to say, "Yeah, I did that." And when we have honesty, we have intimacy, and that's the trouble with sometimes with marriages too. When we're not honest with each other, then we will lack intimacy. This week, I ran across a story about Catherine and Powers, and she actually lived in Eugene, Corvallis, and Lebanon. And perhaps you might have heard of her name before. In 1970, a long time ago, during the Vietnam War, she helped rob a couple banks and stole 500 pounds of ammunition from a National Guard armory. And in fact, she was the getaway driver when they robbed a bank and got $27,000 and they killed a police officer as they fled away. Catherine Ann Powers then moved to Oregon where she lived here in the Willamette Valley for 23 years. In fact, she started a restaurant on 13th and 6th in Napoli, a bakery down there, that that restaurant. In 1993, she had such guilt and depression in her life that she decided to turn herself in. She had a 13-year-old son, but yet she was living a contradiction in her life as well. Here's what she says. I was living the contradiction of a hidden story versus living life in a good way. Yet to live life in a good way, you have to be authentic. She goes on in several articles I read about her to say that when she surrendered herself to the Boston police and they slapped the handcuffs on, it was the most freeing part of her life. Why is that? Why would she go to jail? She went for six years or so because the weight of the guilt had been lifted off when you confess. You don't have to confess to me, you don't have to confess to anybody else, because first and foremost we sin against God as well. In her story she writes that how she was overwhelmed with a sense of dread, depression, guilt, and anxiety because she was carrying the weight of all that was unbearable. If you want to be close with God, you have to have a clear conscience. And the way to get to that clear conscience, don't you want to have a clear conscience today? And the way to get there is to confess your sin. And say, God, I have this pride problem, and it's destroying me. I've got this anger issue in my life, and it's hurting my family. You may need to confess that Hey, I've mismanaged my money and then there's all kinds of difficulty in my life. You just need to acknowledge those things. And in fact, after you acknowledge them to God, you may need to go and acknowledge them to the people you've hurt. But here's the thing. Once you confess to God, it restores intimacy because honesty is the root of a close relationship with God you can have that today. You can have it right now. In fact, all that, you, all, all that you need to do is to talk to God on your own. You don't have to do it with me. You, don't, you can do it just looking at me. You can close your eyes. You can read your Bible today. But the very moment that you come clean is the very moment you will begin to experience incredible spiritual changes in your life and transformation. That's what I want for you. I want you to enjoy God and walk in the light as He is in the light, because that will change you. What should I do when I sin? That's John's question that he's answering. And the answer is, be authentic with God and tell Him the real story of your life. He already knows, but He wants to hear it from you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Son Jesus died for us, and we thank You that when we come to You and confess our sin, that You are gracious and that You forgive our sin. Lord, I pray for those who are listening to me who are struggling with spiritual failure in their lives, and I pray, Father, that You would draw them to Yourself and that they would come to you in authenticity. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the people who make up Grace Community Fellowship, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.